Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Well, we are back. Thank you guys for having us back. We had a very successful season one. Thank you very much for all your emails and comments and questions and we're just surprised, frankly, that anybody's listening. We are back now with London Town, the follow-up to Wings at the Speed of Sound. London Town finds McCartney in the water. Originally entitled Water Wings, this album, which is mostly Denny, Paul, and Linda, the Band on the Run trio, finds them recording some of their most eccentric, whimsical, pastoral and yet also massive hit material. Chris, how do you feel about this record just right off the top? I think it's an underrated album. Absolutely, yeah. It may be not even underrated, just sort of forgotten, sort of overlooked. It seems to me that when you look at recent reviews of London Town, people always act surprised. Yeah. Wow, where did this little wings gem come (laughs) from? Everyone seems to think it's a record with a good mix of songs. I admit that, I have a special relationship to this one. Uh, Let me just tell a little story about this album and my relationship to it. So I started buying Paul McCartney albums in the fall of 1983. And as of the fall of 1984, I was all caught up with Paul's solo albums. I bought Give My Regards to Broad Street when it came out in October of 84. And I picked up Wings Over America at the same time, and that was it. I was caught up on Paul McCartney's studio albums, except for London Town, this one album that had eluded me. And so I couldn't find London Town anywhere. I'd looked in a lot of different places, and I finally found it one afternoon in the sixth grade. Our English class took a little field trip to the local library, and there was London Town on the shelves of the library. So I took it home and explored the lyrics and made a tape of it, of course. And a few months after that, a friend of mine found a copy at a flea market. And so I had my official LP of it at that time. The reason this is an interesting story, I think, is the way it relates back to what was happening with the record label at the time. It turns out that in 1978, McCartney signed with Columbia in the U.S. Yeah. And at that time, McCartney's solo albums were reissued by Columbia, I think in more or less sequential order. So I mentioned 1983 and 1984 is when I was buying my first Paul McCartney albums. So those would have been Columbia reissues, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting is that apparently Columbia never got around to reissuing London Town. I don't know why exactly, but they never reissued it. All I could find in the stores was whatever they still had left in stock. Otherwise, it was going to be Columbia reissues. So nobody had London Town still in stock. That's why I couldn't find it. 
I guess maybe the fact that London Town was the last of McCartney's U.S. Capitol albums before he signed with Columbia, maybe that's why they didn't get to it in the reissue series. Because every other McCartney album I have from that time is Columbia. So McCartney went back to Capitol in 1985, and at that time, I suppose any reissues were off the table, and I suppose London Town was the only remaining one. Anyway, that's the story of why London Town was a little mysterious to me, that I couldn't find it even after a year of searching. I finally found a scratched-up copy at the library, made a tape of it, and that's how I got to know London Town. Wow. So after all that... It was a little anticlimactic. <laughs> it's sort of a strange way to end my first big McCartney phase. It's so out of time. And this kind of gets back to what you were saying earlier, the variety of songs on the album. It seems completely out of step with the times, with 1978. Absolutely. There are a couple of, yeah, there are some really 1978-style productions on the album, but only three or four. And much of it sounds as if it could have been recorded in 1965 or something. Sure. Well, yeah, it's absolutely an eclectic album yet i mean it's not perfect but it's very enjoyable and as time goes by i go back to this record and i find things in it either lyrically or musically that maybe i missed the first time or well you know i said earlier that it's underrated but it's also understated Yes. It really doesn't jump out at you. And you're right. It's held up well for me over time. You find things in it on repeated listens. The artwork is great. I think the vibe in the studio is good. You know, some of the production's a little flat, but, you know, as we'll jump in in a second, it was recorded on a boat, a lot of it, <laughs> off the Virgin Islands. There is something amiss about the sound quality. Yeah. And we, yeah, we will come back to that. It might be that it was recorded in a boat. I have some other theories about that, too. (laughs) Okay. Well, let me do just a little bit of housekeeping and catch everybody up on a few facts, and I'll give you a couple quotes. So, this record was released the 31st of March in 1978. It was recorded from February 77 to January 1978 at Abbey Road. AIR Studios, both in London and then on the yacht Fair Carol in Watermelon Cay, Virgin Islands. That's right. Paul and crew brought a tape machine out on a boat and they were recording on the water, hence the working title Water Wings. McCartney produced this album himself. It was released in the UK on Parlophone and Capital in the US. And actually, Denny Lane came up with the idea of recording on a on a boat. In the early 1970s, Denny lived on the Searchlight. It was a barge moored on the Thames between Shepperton and Chertsey. The vessel was later sold to Viv Stanchel of the Bonzo Duda Band, you know, the band in Magical Mystery Tour. So Denny pitched this idea to Paul. So Denny has a quote, I've always loved boats and I thought it might be an interesting way to record an album. Paul loved this idea and he stated, uh, I like to record and not have to feel like it's too much work. I hate to think I'm going to work now. I'm going to go grind some music out. So this laid-back approach really appealed to Paul, and it also appealed to Jimmy McCulloch, who was still in the band at the time, who was very much about leisure and hanging out and drinking and the drugs that he was doing. There was a lot of merriment as they were recording. They were jumping from boat to boat, splashing about in the water. There's one story I read about where... They saw dolphins, you know, as they were recording. 
Chris, can you even believe? I can't comprehend it. Yeah, it sounds truly enchanted. Yeah. And when you think about some of the songs they recorded there, like With a Little Luck, that was recorded there and, you know, in the water, in the boat, in the Fair Carol. Yeah. Imagine an upbeat, optimistic song like that. You're out there in the sunshine, on the water, swimming all day. That's got to be pretty fun. True yacht rock. True late 70s. (laughs) Easy breezy. Literally yacht rock. Maybe it's the only literal yacht rock. I don't know. Yeah. Despite the idyllic surroundings, the sessions weren't without some drama. Jeff Emmerich electrocuted himself in the foot somehow. Alan Crowder, who was on board, slipped down a set of stairs and broke his heel. Uh, And he had to come back on the boat, bouncing about on a crutch that sort of made him look like a pirate. And Linda wasn't in the best sort. She was pretty upset because she didn't want any of the other women around because at the time she was pregnant with James and these guys on the boat were constantly talking about women. Everything was turning to women, every other word, women, women, women. And Denny was dating a very attractive woman at the time and Jimmy had a Playboy Playmate as as a model. So there was some (laughs) tension, absolutely, on board. Despite all that, it was a series of successful recording sessions. They went out in the water, recorded a bunch, came back to London, finished recording, finished overdubbing. Yeah, you know, and if anything went wrong audio-wise, I can't tell it on the final record. If the dingy quality of the final product is the result of recording on the boat, that would be a little strange because that same quality pervades the Abbey Road tracks. Yeah. So I really think that things seem to have gone very well recording-wise on the boat. Absolutely. For what could have gone wrong on the boat, we're really lucky to have these recordings. And we're lucky that the label even fronted the money (laughs) to put the... Yeah. Or the risk of putting a recording studio on a boat. From there, I know they came back after recording and they did a bunch of promotional material on a boat on the Thames. And it just sounds like it's a real great period. The arc of the entire last season is the breakup of the Beatles, Paul bringing himself out of that and then reestablishing his success, his commercial success, maybe even giving himself his own worth back. Now, Paul has done this big world tour that was very successful in the United States. He's had number one hits again, a lot of hits actually with Wings. This feels like to me a record that's a combination of Band on the Run and then some of the whimsy of Ram. Yeah, and to my mind, it's the last real Wings album. Absolutely. Back to the Egg is sort of a new band. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe it's Wings because it is still Paul Linda and Denny, but it seems to me that he had built a lineup that saw fruition on Wings at the Speed of Sound and continued to work on this album. They don't get as much credit as they deserve, in fact, Jimmy and Joe English for the work they did on this album. Back to the Egg begins to feel like an attempt to revive something that's already dead. Yeah. Absolutely. And we will definitely get into that as I know we both have been listening to both this album and Back to the Egg. They're very similar in my mind because I think I got them around the same time. But I have to say these are exciting albums to be talking about for me. Ryan, we are about to talk everyone's freaking head off about London Town, (laughs) Back to the Egg and McCartney 2. Albums nobody has heard of, much less heard Despite the fact that they were all huge hits and had big hits on the radio. They've just disappeared into, yeah. Right. It's like we have, with a little luck, 
which is a number one. And you have Mullivkin Tire, which is one of the biggest singles the UK ever saw, ever. That's right. So I would say this is an outlier. This is one of the McCartney records that's still pretty good and had commercial success and yet has been buried a bit, even by Paul. Is there a single one of these songs he plays consistently live today? I don't think so. Not even with a little luck, which is a strange thing. It's just hard to believe. I'm not surprised that he doesn't perform famous groupies in concert today, (laughs) but with a little luck, at least, I think of that as being in the pantheon of 70s McCartney hits, and it's strange that even he has sort of turned his back on it. A couple of other notes here I have just from the recording sessions. So eight of the tracks for the album were recorded on the boat. We'll get to that as we go song by song. There are outtakes that, you know, I don't even know if I have some of these. El Toro passing, running around the room, standing very still, Agoo Mr. DD. I haven't heard some of these either. This is just some deep, deep digging, and who knows if any of those have even been released. You do have some good outtakes we'll get to, like Water Spout, the old jazz standard, After You've Gone. Mm. Not really an outtake, but the B-side to Mull of Kintyre. In fact, why don't we just jump right into Mull of Kintyre? What do you say? Okay, let's do it. Mull of Kintyre Only strolling in from the sea My desire is always to be This song started out with Paul and Denny climbing up the hill, actually in the Mull of Kintyre, with a bottle of whiskey and just strumming on acoustic guitars until I figured this song out. Now, McCartney was bringing the bulk of the music with him that day, yes? Yes, that's right. Based on the piano demo I've heard, it sounds as if McCartney had the lyrics for the chorus, at least the basic lyrics for the chorus, and he had the music and a few of the words for the verse. And he was playing it on piano, very sloppily. Very sloppily. Maybe we should... Right. Yeah, let's play a little bit of that demo. Yeah, let's hear that. So it sounds as if the song is partly formed, 
And he's got this seed of an idea that, as you say, he and Denny are taking up onto the hill with some scotch and guitars. So he had this tune, and then the there was ultimately the B-side, Girls' School, which is very much like a new wave rocker. You know, as, as, as hard rocking as Paul gets in the 70s, Girls' School is, is in that pantheon. It's comparable to Junior's Farm. Right. Or Helen Wheels. or Soily, maybe. Something like that. Yeah. And he was playing both of these songs, Mull of Kintyre and Girls' School, members of ELO, friends of his, like, like which one is it? What do you think? And everybody's saying to him, put out Mull of Kintyre, man. And he, being Paul, who historically I don't think is very good at picking his own singles, was like, nah, I think it's, I really, I think it's Girl school. I mean, the quote I have here about Mulukintyre is like, the song touched me, but I wasn't sure it was everybody's cup of tea. Yet, mm. it goes on. It was... Well, it is a sort of regional anthem. Yeah. He might have worried about its appeal in the U.S. And he was, I guess, correct. It wasn't a huge hit in the U.S., but it charted. Number one for 16 weeks in the U.K., though. Yeah. From the notes I have here, it only took about an hour to record the song. An hour. Paul is playing and singing outdoors, yes? Yeah, they're outdoors. And Paul has the Campbelltown Pipe Band playing bagpipes on this thing. Beautiful. I know a little something about bagpipe miking, it turns out. Okay. Why don't you share it with us? <laughs> and, you, and you do have to record them outside, generally. You record them with dynamic mics outside, preferably on a football field, or in this case, it sounds as if they did it just in the grass mm-hmm. in McCartney's farm. But yeah, that's the idea, because they're so incredibly loud. Even one of them is so loud, you have to do it outside. And certainly an entire choir of them like this. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? McCartney singing and playing outside live and this choir of bagpipes behind them. That image, that inspiration, I think you can hear that on the record. Because the the recording itself, I mean, it's not completely clean. The whole thing's not clean. But just the performance, you you just feel it. And I think that that song deserved to be the hit that it is and was. Beautiful verse melody. And there's a really great key change uh, in there. Oh, yeah, the modulation. That sort of, yeah, that sort of accommodates the bagpipes. You sort of get the two keys that they can play best in there. Total Paul, total Paul. What are the two, what are the keys? And he gets them both, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, Mull of Kintyre was recorded after they came back from the Fair Carol. So they had finished the first round of, or the first two rounds, really, of London Town Sessions, and they took time out to go back to Scotland and record Mull of Kintyre. So the decision was made to, to pair it with Girls' School. Now, was there an attempt in the U.S. to remarket? Well, wasn't Girls' School the A-side in the U.S. Yeah. or something? Or A lot of the DJs yeah. in the U.S. just... Uh, it became the de facto A-side. Yeah, think about what's going on in the U.S. 77, 78. New Wave, Punk, New wave. Elvis Costello, yeah. The Clash... Sex Pistols, that yes. sort of thing. Like, well, that's some of what's going on. I mean, we'll we'll get back to it when we talk about the album proper. But Barry Manilow was going on, and Kenny Loggins was going on. I mean, there was a lot of soft rock in the air mm-hmm. in the late seventies. It wasn't all punk. 
No, you know? no, no, no. But it's true, punk was on the leading edge at that time. Yeah. What's the most punk thing you can do when punk is out? Release Mole of Kintyre. <laughs> it's, it's almost a punk statement. That's a good statement. point. Yeah, it's a punk statement unto itself. And releasing Girls' School is actually a bit embarrassing under those circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's on the nose. It's, it's sort of old-timey, sort of an old-timey rocker. What? Yeah, exactly. Why does he think that's a response to punk? <laughs> <laughs> so this song surpassed the Beatles' She Loves You, but then was overtaken by Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas. Still, number one for 16 weeks, and number one in the UK singles charts, in Australia, in Belgium, in Germany... In Ireland, in Switzerland, incredibly successful chart performance, basically everywhere but the United States. It's been certified double platinum in the UK, Ireland. It's gone gold in Germany and in Belgium. And and do they know it's Christmas does not entirely count, seeing as that's a charity scene. That's right. So you could yeah. say that this is still one of the most successful, if not the successful singles that Paul's ever released, and yet he's not playing it live. I mean, he does it in the UK. Let's, let's play a little bit of Do They Know It's Christmas. Yeah, So, Girls School. I love Girls School. Great song. I love it. Yeah. Great song, Girls School. And do you, yeah. do you know that he wrote this song the same week that he wrote Silly Love Songs? I did not yeah. know that. Same week that he wrote Silly Love Songs. So, he had been holding on to this for a couple of years. So he was in Hawaii reading the back of a newspaper where they had the ads for all like the porno movies in town. And uh -huh. he just had this idea and he's like, oh my God, it would be such a great concept to turn that just into like a big pop song. You know, all these young girls kind of, you know, the school of sexually promiscuous women and, and young women. It's, it's, it's a bit edgy for Paul. It really is. Yeah. The lyric. Yeah. It's pretty risque, and I think it's, you know, kind of charming. It's really charming, and it's another one of those that I'm almost positive hasn't even been reissued. Like, it's hard to find. It was reissued in 93 on the London Town Parlophone. Got it. It see, came yeah. out, yeah. You have Denny on this, you have Jimmy McCulloch on it, Joe English is on drums. You still have the 76 Wings lineup, the live Wings lineup on this, and I think that's what gives it a lot of the power. And, and some of the yeah. screaming Paul does near the end is just as good as any other rockers. Oh, absolutely. The really lush, stacked harmonies that come in with the beginning of the chorus. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Very well done. Classic Wings harmonies. Yeah, but despite all that, it only reached number 33 on the Billboard Hot 100. 
and it made it up to 34 in Canada. Now, this was essentially the first song recorded for the London Town Sessions. That's right. So if you think about this in context, where they're coming out of Wings at the Speed of Sound, and they're coming out of the big tour, they've got the full five-piece band, and February 77, they're going to Abbey Road to record the new Wings album. London Town is sort of fragmented in terms of the way it was recorded. What you have there is the core of the next Wings album of the sequel to Speed of Sound that then morphed into something else when the band broke up and everything sort of went awry in the middle. So it's interesting to listen to London Town as, think about it in terms of it being the follow-up to Wings Over America and the follow-up to Silly Love Songs, Let Em In. It's, you know, it's an attempt to come out with something that maybe reflects the rocking atmosphere of Wings Over America more than the soft rock aspects of Let Em In and Silly Love Songs. Yeah, I believe this album would have been entirely different if it were just recorded in London. I think you would have had a more hard rocking edge. With a little luck would have still been one of the singles, but maybe all the synths would have been dropped out of it or who knows? So how about before we dig in on the track list, we check in with one of our Beatle friends, George Harrison. So this takes us back to November of 1976, 33 and a third. And I think it's a real big step in the right direction for George Harrison after a couple of lackluster albums in 74 and 75, he comes back pretty strong with 33 and a third. I don't love it, but it is the best one since, I mean, if you look at it at the time, it's the best one since living in the material world. Absolutely it was. There's a few gems on this. Yeah, I like Woman Don't You Cry For Me, largely because of the production on that one. It's And it's not that it's a great piece of songwriting, but it's it's a really beautifully produced track. a little bit of the sort of thing Talking Heads will be doing later. Groove-oriented track, where it's really about how interesting the sounds are and how fluid and complex the groove is. I noticed something about this album as you go through it. The tracks go back and forth between these really crisp, bright productions and then slipping back into the murky sound of extra texture. Yeah. This track is actually one of the really bright, crisp-sounding tracks. Now, one of the other tracks that I really like is this song.
And that one actually does suffer from some of the production problems I just mentioned. You have to love the self-referential lyrics. This song is about that very song. Mm-hmm. He's singing about the song he's singing about. Mm-hmm. Pretty good tune. And this was a modest hit. U.S. Billboard Hot 100. It hit 25. It was number 30 in Canada. And in France, you had it at number 44. If you guys get a chance, check out the uh, promotional music video that they premiered on Saturday Night Live in November 20th, 1976. It was the episode that was hosted by Paul Simon, in which uh, there's a great, actually, Paul Simon. We are so off topic, (laughs) but Paul Simon and George Harrison do a great performance on that episode, too. So very special episode of Saturday Night Live. I also like Cracker Box Palace a lot. Yeah, me too. And that was another one that had a little oddball music video, right? That's right. Yeah, where he's in like, they call them prams in the UK or like a buggy or whatever. <laughs> a stroller. That's right. That's right. I was so young when I was born. My eyes could not yet see. And by the time my first dawn, somebody holding me. I just listened to that song, this album, and that one is another one that I think is very well produced, very clean sounding. Sounds a lot like Woman, Don't You Cry For Me, actually. Uh And my memory of it was that it was more disco sounding or more late 70s sounding than it really is. It's it's really quite eccentric. It's got these saxophones kind of doubling the bass line, and it's got this sort of fancy clavinet work. Quite a strange production. Yeah, it's very, but it's a very catchy, fun song. Absolutely. It's a catchy, fun song. I have to say, I'm not sure what it's about. I no. gave the lyrics a once over this morning. I have morning. no idea. I'm not quite sure what the Cracker Box Palace is. He, he makes it sound as if the Cracker Box Palace is life itself, maybe? I'll buy that. I'll buy that's that all for just a dollar. Absurd. Sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's my best, that's my <laughs> best guess. But overall, I think the album is really good. I think it's a, a major improvement on Extra Texture from 75. Yeah. So that song, Cracker Box Palace with the B-side of Learning How to Love You, hit 17 on the Canadian RPM 100 AC charts, was number 17 in the U.S. Cashbox Top 100, and hit 19 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. So fairly successful. Pretty solid album, modest hit. Good job from George Harrison. All right, so let's just kick this off at the top of London Town with track one, side one, London Town. Walking down the sidewalk on a purple afternoon, I was accosted by a barker playing the simple tune upon his flute. So this song was actually a single on the album. It was released August 21st, 1978. 
made it to 39 in the US, 43 in Canada, and number 60 in the UK. Not exactly successful, but it was the follow-up to the then best-selling UK single of all time, Mull of Kintyre. I've always really loved this song, but it never really yeah. finds its way into my like top 10 or top 20. Okay, maybe it's not top 10 or top 20, since the entire album Ram would take up a good chunk of the top 20 for me. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but I think it's a wonderful song. You know, McCartney is a master of sequencing. We've talked before about how beautifully sequenced these albums are. And he always chooses a very arresting way to begin an album. That's right. And often he uses an understated opening. So if you think about Band on the Run or Venus and Mars, mm -hmm. where things start off a little slow and then build. This is an interesting choice to start with a lush electric piano and go right into a mid-tempo soft rock ballad right at the top of the album. If you pull the music apart and you look at the lyrics, it's it's complex though, and it sounds simple, but I love the, your choice of word understated. It is very relaxed. I think it sets the stage for With a Little Luck, which comes later. It's like, it whets your appetite for this kind of vibe. Along with With a Little Luck, it's one of the songs that has a real 70s feel to it. Yes. Maybe it's just the electric piano and the kind of yeah. stuffy drums. <laughs> you the, know, the panning electric drums. piano and all of that. Yeah, and... exactly. But I love this song. I think it has very solid lyrics, too. Really good lyrics. Yeah. Accosted by a barker, arrested <laughs> by a roser. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I will say this a bunch of times. I believe this is the album that John Lennon made the reference to why Paul is pizza and fairy tales, or it at least provides evidence for that. London Town, a few of these tracks, they're fairy tales. They're whimsy. It's a pizzas and fairy tales album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would say that. Yeah. 304 yeah. of this uh, at this song, what a great guitar back and forth. Just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, what's up with the little rockin' out section of London Town? What's going on there? I don't. I I have no is idea. Is that is he illustrating that London can be a wild town too? <laughs> yeah, purpose for a few bars and then back to gray London Town. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's fun though. It's good. I like the back and forth a lot. Yeah. I think it also sets up perfectly the next track, Cafe on the Left Bank. Ah, it is a little bit of foreshadowing of the sound of that track. It just isn't kicks it? you right into that next song.
So Cafe on the Left Bank recorded May 2nd and then had November where there were some overdubs at Abbey Road. But May 2nd on the boat, mobile studio on the Fair Carol in the Virgin Islands. This is a fantastic little gem of a record that is overlooked and never mentioned and not discussed. Fantastic lyrics, really good Very performances. Good yeah, really good yes, lyrics. It's good Europop. Singing, yeah. You know? It's Europop. We should point out that London Town was an Abbey Road track from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So let's compare the sound quality of London Town to Cafe on the Left Bank, which is a Fair Carol, at least originates at Fair Carol yeah. on, the, on the yacht. What do you think? They sound pretty similar. They sound similar to me. So yeah, I love Cafe on the Left Bank, and I would love to hear a Cafe on the Left Bank or something from this record with a little locker, one of these tracks, just live, just... Give me one, Paul. By dawn's first light, I'll come back to your room again. So from Cafe on the Left Bank, we take a journey down to the song I'm Carrying. A quick little number, all Paul. It's a really nice little tune that George Harrison, I know we were talking about him earlier, he thought that this song was sensational. This recording is beautiful. Apparently, the basic guitar and vocal is Paul on the deck of the boat Mm -hmm. outside. You can imagine that being a very, very lovely setting, you know, to record a a modest little track like this. Sounds as if the guitar was double tracked. And we have an instrument on here called a gizmotron. Mm -hmm, I love it. I did a little research on the gizmotron. Yeah, and it, it seems to be a little like motor activated, sort of mechanical version of the Ebo. Ebo uses a magnetic signal to activate the string so you can sustain however long. And the Gizmotron seems to do a version of that using actual friction, actually touching and activating the string continuously. You can barely hear it on the track, but it's neat that it's there. It sort of blends into the strings. There's a string section on there as well. Really nice production, really nice performance. The lyrics are nice. Beautiful performance, yeah. They are about... Bit of a half-baked song, though. Yeah, a bit of a half-baked song, but that vibe. He nails the vibe, this authentic yacht rock we're talking about. Yes. <laughs> Actually and, sung on the deck of the yacht. <laughs> I'm carrying Come help me I'm carrying something for you. And this tune made an appearance in the 2003 movie The In-Laws. Albert Brooks is in that. That's the same oh. soundtrack that we get our reworked version of A Love for You that we were discussing. Our butchered version. The butchered, yeah. we're older, Paul is reinforcing the chorus vocal and yeah so kind of bizarre i'm carrying and a love for you pulled for a 2003 effectively like a rom-com or a dark comedy with albert brooks in it but there you go that's mccartney the selection so i like it it's just a little half-baked it's really just a single verse and chorus going back and forth Mm -hmm. so it's insubstantial songwriting wise it's sort of a sweet version of that would be something 
Mm-hmm. And I think it has a bit of good. a vibe of We're Open Tonight, which we'll see on yes. Back to the Egg. He was knocking these types of tunes off at this time. Maybe not finishing yeah. them. They were hanging around. The next tune, Backwards Traveler at 109, this song this song could be twice as long, maybe three times as long. It could have been a single. I love this song. Hey, did you know? Maybe. <laughs> oh, no. I have, Challenge I, I have a theory. Well, not exactly. I have a theory about what happened here. So you've heard the demo, of course. Yes. It's, a, it's not. Yeah. Okay. Let's play a little bit of the demo. Let's play actually. some of that demo. Okay, so this, you, yeah, <laughs> it's not now done. when you when you found out that there was a full length version of Backwards Traveler, you were pretty excited, right? And then you yeah. heard this demo. Yeah, I was. And so, you weren't that excited. Super psyched, and you hear it, and yeah, let down. Okay, central. Here's what I think happened. Okay, I think Paul had this little demo, and he just thought it would be fun to record it as a fragment and stick it onto another tune. He didn't know it was going to come out as well as it did. Mm. You're hearing this finished version of it and thinking, wow, give me another couple verses of that. But Paul didn't even know it was good. Unbelievable. He was thinking about the demo and doing a verse for the album just as a link track. And so I think that's what happened. I share your feelings that this song is really seems like the seed of a great hit. Rhyming slang... Odd Lang Syne, My Dears, Through the Years. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then just wailing on the moon. He Wailing on the moon. That's, that's Ancient the, Tree Unraveler. <sighs> Ancient Tree Unraveler is, that is some psychedelic shit right there. Yeah. That's nice. It's like Jet. The song could have been Jet, a new version of that. And yeah. it, if it was just focused and redone and 
I don't know. And, and what really bugs me, what really grinds my gears, as Peter Griffin says, <laughs> is, <laughs> is you get after this song, Cufflink, which is yeah. all, nearly double the length of Backwards Traveler. And Cufflink is just a big waste of space for me. I have no Cuff idea. Cufflink is Cufflink. Yeah, I have no idea what's it's on this right. album. It's all right. I mean, the synthesizer sounds are pretty good for the time. Maybe that's what it is. It's just like, whoa, I can't believe I'm yeah. getting this song. Interesting. I just thought of this. Maybe this is where a lot of the McCartney 2 experimentation comes from. Oh, certainly. The middle section of With a Little Luck. That's oh, total. Oh, my God. Yeah, preface to McCartney 2. One of the best. Yeah, so not a ton to say about Cufflink. It's fine. I think Backwards Traveler slash Cufflink would be a great... It is a B-side, actually. But it would be a great actual B-side, you know, just for a single. We would appreciate it and, and love it for that. But as it is, it kind of interrupts the flow here on side A of yeah. this otherwise solid album. To your point before about how it's a fragment, this was originally meant to be a part of a song suite with name and address and a few of the other tracks on the B-side. I see. Yeah. And Paul is on the drums on this one. He's doing that thing where he does, where he cobbles together songs. He just didn't cobble them all the way together this time yeah <laughs> so after backwards traveler and cufflink which are you know, effectively one song you have a denny lane contribution and all of denny lane's contributions on this record are pretty pretty excellent so you have children children which paul himself says is a soundtrack to a cartoon pizza and fairy tales this track has I don't, is that auto harp are those 12 string guitars the bass work is good yeah, he puts together quite the jamboree, actually. The harmonies. Here's what we have listed for this track. Yeah. Acoustic guitar, violin, flute, auto harp, maybe, a harmonica from Joe English. <laughs> from yeah. good old Joe English. Oh, also Denny Lane acoustic guitar and flute. So multiple flutes. So Paul plays a little fiddle on this. It's sort of an open string fiddle type thing, but it just shows Paul once again, just whatever's at hand. He can make it work. I know a tiny waterfall, a magic little place where we can play together and watch the fishes race. This is a fine Denny Lane song. And, you know, Wings has sort of a tradition of doing children's songs. Mm -hmm. It fits right in. Mm -hmm. Works great with Mama's Little Girl or Hey Diddle or Mary Had a Little Lamb. We'll get to Waterspout, but I always thought that this song would have made a good B-side to Waterspout if Waterspout had been finished and considered for a single. 
Yes, we will get to Waterspout. Yeah, we will get to that. But for now, we're going to mosey over to the song Girlfriend, written all the way back in 1972. Another instance of Paul just writing amazing songs, sitting on them, waiting on them. plays almost everything on this particular track it has great horns and clarinets on it the line till the ocean's a sea of snow what a good line that's beautiful yeah yeah and what do you know about the whole michael jackson connection it's interesting so this song was actually offered to michael jackson first then Recorded for London Town, then recorded by Michael Jackson. That's, that's the right. Quincy Jones heard it, and he says, like, I've just heard a song that's perfect for you, Michael. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, well, it's because it was written for you. 1975 on the Queen Mary for the big Venus and Mars launch party. That's where Paul first offered that song to Michael Jackson. I guess Michael Jackson kind of forgot about it, and so did Paul. He pulled it up for London Town, and I love this story that Quincy Jones comes running. Ah, oh, I just heard this record. Yeah. You got to hear this. This is for you, man. <laughs> Michael's like, yeah, it is for me. Actually, I forgot <laughs> about that. Let's do it. <laughs> that Mike's version on Off the Wall, which was released in 1979, so not too much later than this version, hit 41. Yeah, imagine that. Just the year later, basically. Yeah. yeah. It hit 41 on the U.S. charts, and Paul said that it was better than the London Town version, which, I, I mean, I don't know about that. But both versions are I great. I think they're equivalent. I think the off-the-wall version is a bit slicker. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Michael Jackson's amazing vocals. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for the London Town version. Yeah, I like the Mike Vickers. It's not one of those... Occasionally you hear something where a songwriter gives a song to another singer-songwriter, and that second singer-songwriter makes the first version sound like a demo. Mm-hmm. I've heard that happen. For example, Carol King, It's Gonna Take Some Time. She later on gave that to the Carpenters, who did a version that was so good that she even said, it makes my version that I released sound like a demo. Wow. And that's, yeah, she's right. But in this case, I think McCartney's version is a fully realized, beautiful record. Yeah, it's really a highlight on London Town, actually. This one and famous groupies, there are a few that I always go back to that always provide new reward. Mike Vickers did the arrangement, and he conducted the orchestra as well. He's the same guy that conducted the All You Need Is Love Orchestra, and he worked on Step Inside Love. You might know that tune from the the old Beatles Mm. days. Yeah. Great tune. Some Beatle love on there. Let's just play a big chunk of this tune. Okay, let's do it.
All right, I've had enough. Oh, that's actually also the ah. name of the next song. <laughs> Good one. Which is the song that wraps up the A side. So this yeah. tune. Hi, right, well, yeah, okay. Go on. It reminds me a lot of Angry on Press to Play. Yeah, I agree. It's as if someone told Paul, you need a like an angry song once in a while. So he did one. It's a good song. It's a good straight up blues. The vocal sounds, I mean, he uses his like scratchy concert voice, which is kind of cool. You're talking to me from the back of my car and I can't get nothing right. And then you wonder why I stand at the bar day and night. Well, I've had enough. I can't put up with any more. Paul referred to it as just one of those fed up songs. You know, just one of those. <laughs> Was this an attempt to be punk? You to go with some punk subject matter, some new wave subject matter, you know, complaining about the man type stuff? I would say so, for sure. I think it's a pretty sweet little record, but it's a very contained performance. It doesn't even rock out the way that girls school does no no Don't you no. think it's very contained compared to that there's something very thin about the production and the performance of yeah. like the instrumentation i think i think mccartney's vocals great but yeah something's missing something's missing on the yeah. track for me now this was a modest hit yeah released as a single june 12th 78 25 in the u.s 24 in canada 42 in the uk and then in the netherlands it was released as a two-sided single with this song and deliver your children that reached number 13 so some success there's a cool promotional video too where they're almost looking like they're in the 80s like 80s fashion check out on youtube yeah i collected up the singles for london town and i thought the pairings were interesting i've had enough paired with deliver your children that's right london town paired with i'm carrying correct that's a pretty soft single. And then you have With a Little Luck paired with Backwards Traveler Cufflink. Mm, I want to buy, I need to go buy that. I'm going to probably buy that within the next few months. Man, that's, that's a nice single to have. And that puts Backwards Traveler Cufflink where it belongs on the B side of a great single. The last thing I'll say about this tune is that I love every single word in the lyric, all of them. People tell me you're a punctual man, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> come on. Come on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. really fun. Really fun little song. So that's it. That wraps up the A-side. And now we flip over to the B-side and you are treated to one of Paul's best productions with a little luck.
this not a hugely famous Paul McCartney song today? I have no idea at all. It couldn't be better. It's really well written. The lyrics are great. The chord structure is great. Paul even says, like, I love those chords on that song. Maybe it's the production? Well, it suffers from the same sound that the entire album does. Yeah, it's a little too soft and muffled, but I, yeah. I think it's beautiful. And now we have two versions of this song. We have the album version at 545 in length and then there's the the dj edit for the radio right 513 right but th those extra couple of minutes we get this beautiful synthesizer solo section that yeah. really is as you were saying before like pre-mccartney 2 mccartney 2 yes yeah you know, i went through a period in which i preferred the dj edit at this point i prefer the long edit I think the ending with the scratchy vocal and the sort of suddenly rock and rolly quality that it has it makes less sense if it just is tacked on yeah. to the rest of the song, as in the DJ edits. I think it makes more sense to go through the synthesizer journey, so to speak, and then get to the scratchy Joe Cocker vocal at the I end. I love the end vocal, how it comes out of nowhere, just the big lift. Yeah. I think it's a better song than Silly Love Songs, actually. Agreed. I and mean, I think if you're willing to indulge Silly Love Songs, the extended horn and string sections, that you shouldn't mind the synthesizer section here. No, uh, no, It no. is well done for 1970s pop synthesizers. It's pretty smart. Some really good use of the mod wheel and some good programming. Mm -hmm. That little um, popcorn-y, that yeah. little part. That's, that's a good bit of programming right there. Very, very well done. And so it was released as a single, 320.78, went number one in the US, number five in the UK. In the chart positions, I mean, it was number one in a lot of places, Canada, Ireland, number three in New Zealand, 
Number five on the US Billboard AC charts, the adult contemporary charts. Hit six in Norway, 11 in Austria, 11 in Australia, 17 in Germany. This record moved units and yeah, it just I just really think it's bizarre, especially because he always says how he likes it, that he just doesn't play it. Maybe he can't sing it anymore. He can't sing the... I don't know. He can sing it. Yeah. I don't know. Well, we have it. We have the record. We can play to our heart's content. It's a good one, and it's right there with the big McCartney hits of the 70s. Truly a fine song and a fine record. Very good vocal. Yeah, that's great. This song leads right into a really bizarre... <laughs> We've already seen a few bizarre songs, but the most bizarre songs on this album have not even showed up until now. Famous Groupies. I, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I don't. Where do I start? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a song about groupies. Mm-hmm. So it has clear subject matter. It's a song about some particularly strange and extravagant groupies. And it uses some sort of old-fashioned language throughout, including this section at the end in which he seems to be sort of a carnival barker, and he's presenting the groupies as an attraction. Those magnificent examples of female pulchritude and luminosity. (laughs) Yeah. Direct from their global perambulations. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know if you, you catch, you can hear it on the demo that's floating around, but after each verse, before he goes into the next verse, he says, pause. He's directing the band, pause. Huh. Before he starts singing that melody, you might want to pull that up and show the listeners at home. What I find bizarre is that Paul demoed this as a rocker, like a big rock and roll tune, and I've never heard it. I would love to hear that. If anybody has that, shoot it our way, obviously. And, but I think you can hear a lot of that come back in the awesome, awesome slide guitar work. Yeah. And even the part where he's like not even finishing the lyrics, you know, that like mumbly part. That's right. Oh, I love that part. Yeah. I love that. Part. Yeah. Well, let's highlight that. That's yeah. He just basically craps out on the lyric. It's really <laughs> funny.
looks as if it's unclear who played those slide guitar parts. I'm seeing slide guitar question mark next to Paul McCartney and slide guitar question mark next to Jimmy McCulloch on that. That's in the Parasi. It's probably both of them. It sounds more like Paul to me, though. But hmm. on a lot of the research I did for this album, I can't figure out who played what, who was at what session. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they were on a boat. <laughs> yeah. And Jimmy left in the middle, and Jimmy was, I think, deteriorating a bit in his relationship with the band on the boat. So Jimmy's, you know, he's on here. He definitely has some, some great moments on here. Yeah. But he's not as big a force as he was on the 74 through 76 material. No. Famous Groupies, great track. Leads us right into another solid, amazing Denny Lane number that he actually wrote during yes. the Venus and Mars era. Deliver Your Children. What a great song. Yeah, don't let the children in the title fool you. Children, children, and deliver your children really have nothing to do with each other as far as I can tell. No, 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 no. In fact, deliver your children is, if anything, offering an opposite sort of message. Because I take the song to be about a fugitive of sorts, someone who's sort of on the run and who maybe left his wife and children and is the chorus I take sarcastically as deliver your children as in this is what you're supposed to do and what I didn't do. Right. I've never thought of that. Hmm. It's a good thought. Yeah, it's a sarcastic chorus. Deliver your children to the good, good life. ain't got no money but i got me a gun i love yeah. that line i said you robbed me before so i'm robbing you back and if that don't put you straight yeah. it'll put you on the right track she was good and clean with the washing machine but she was yeah getting dirty all over town it's a good song it's very clever and paul just playing the paul mccartney role in the beatles when john would take the lead nailing the bass nailing the harmonies Really, really fun. Really good. Good production. Very good production. Good folk sound with the acoustic instruments. Maybe that was the failure of Denny Lane. He was more folk than Lennon. I think Denny Lane brought a lot of that influence to Wings, maybe more than we realize. I think Denny pulled a lot of that country out of Paul. Mm. Well, Denny does it very well, and he certainly does it well on this track. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is a sort of a highlight of the LP, it turns out. I completely agree with you on that one. I like Children Children, but this is the big Denny Lane number. But yeah, this one is the Lane for sure, this this record. Yeah. Tell a dealer by the color 
Next track on this record is Name and Address. Very much an Elvis throwback or just a tribute. Now, now it's really well sung. It's and it's a beautiful production too. It's got it's got a nice slapback echo on it. Really does the pastiche well with the 50s rock sound. Love to feel the tingle of your heavenly caresses. Love to intermingle a lonely single without addresses. Great. Yeah. But who needs it, right? <laughs> you don't like it? You don't like the track? <laughs> name name and address? Not really, no. Oh, it seems wow. to slow things down. Oh, I think how cool it would be to, to go straight from Deliver Your Children to Don't Let It Bring You Down. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll like get how to that steady in the mood would be. Instead, we get this little fragment thrown in there. Now, you know what? Name and address. Now, talk about an ideal B-side. Correct. That Perfect is correct. B-side. That is correct. Wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had enough. Could be the single and name and address could be the like B-side only. Wouldn't have to be on this album. That's really interesting. Your little faux rock, faux angry A-side. And, and then you can you have your little Elvis B-side. That'd work pretty well. I love that. well done for what it is it's very well done he's really good at at playing this kind of music he is he's a virtuoso of this kind of music so you get that absolutely to hear a master at work on rockabilly yes a pre-run devil run it's a 70s Mm -hmm. version of something he does later on the album run devil run which we'll get to could be years years from now but we'll get to it (laughs) we will get to run devil run yeah it's on our list Name and address. The last thing I'll say about name and address. So they recorded this track between February 7th and March 31st, 77. Elvis dies August 16th, 1977. And the album was released in 78. So Paul records, writes and records this before Elvis dies. Elvis dies and then this album comes out. Really bizarre timing. Really bizarre. Hmm. Because what has he done to this point, something like this, except for maybe Cook of the House, which I don't think counts. It's, yeah, well, uh, obviously early Beatles. But, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah aside, from, yeah, aside from that. Next track, Don't Let It Bring You Down. This is one of my favorite songs of 70s McCartney. And it's at least as good as With A Little Luck on this album. I think this is this is one of the great highlights on this album. Absolutely. Paul plays a little lead bit. The, the lyrics are lean, but they're darker than he usually goes. They're dark and they're pithy, too. Yeah, he wrote it right before he went to sleep one night, and 
Yeah, another criminally underrated McCartney tune. Recorded pretty quickly, May 25th, and then again, November 24th of 77. Old man McCartney now should play this on tour. Just <laughs> sneak it in. It would sound deliciously ragged, wouldn't it? Oh, it would be great. Levels. It'd be great. Well, this thing is just a wonder, and we get one of McCartney's all-time greatest low notes in this, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. We get our beloved two-octave McCartney vocal, and we get a first verse that dips down to this crazy, wonderful, ca- very casual-sounding low note. Some things in life are hard to bear. Don't let it bring you down. Shoot the sand of time I think this is one of those tunes that speaks for itself. I don't think Paul even has a lot to say about this one. I, I couldn't find a lot and... Not much to say about the lyrics. I think the production is beautiful and I, I think this is one of the few tracks on the album where the soft, muffled production style works really well. You have these Irish tin whistles mm-hmm. on here. It could be very shrill except for the way it's mastered and the way it's produced. It comes off very smoothly. A lot of flutes and pipes on this album. Yeah, it's part of the 60s sound that this album. This album has a kind of a 60s sunshine pop mm-hmm. quality yeah. to it, or Baroque pop. Great. Classic record. That one is a gem. That one is a definite gem. So that brings us to the last track on the album, Morse Moose and the Grey Goose. I don't don't like this song really at all. It's too long. At all? I like the little funny sailor bit in the middle. Uh, And I I admire (laughs) the production. This is one of the rare McCartneys for me where I don't go back to this really ever. So this started out as a jam session that Denny and Paul recognized had a Morse code kind of quality with these insistent repeated note rhythms. Sounded like Morse code to them. So the song originates from a jam session 
that uses those rhythms on piano and goes from there. That becomes the Morse Moose part, mm-hmm. which I can't even believe I just said that with straight face. But yep, you yeah. did. So they, they they just they turned the Morse code idea into Morse Moose. Morse Moose is is Morse Moose a ship? I think Morse Moose is a ship. Yeah. And maybe Morse Moose is a ship that's particularly adept at Morse code. I'm not sure. But the the insistent Morse code rhythms go all the way through the entire track. And they come back at the end in a, in a big way. So that's a, that's a kind of a fun feature of the song for me. And it's a kind of a double song with really Morse Moose and Grey Goose are two different songs. And they've been sort of interpolated into a single song. And in fact, go back and forth between them at the end. And the two get intertwined. The Grey Goose was a steady boat. People said she'd never float But one night when the moon was high The great goose flew away As we were sailing round the rocks The mate took out his compass box Said the wind is like a box But the great goose flew away When out upon the open sea The admiral, the mate and me We went to face eternity But the great goose flew away the lyrics are kind of interesting, and the middle section, as you say, you call it the sailor part, it's based on a sort of sea shanty-type tune. It's like 1985, actually, 1985 on Band on the Run. I may prefer it hmm. to 1985. Oh, no to me, way. To there's, there's a little more to it. There's a little more to it than that. It's so esoteric, yeah. the whole Morse code and sailors and, you know... She flew into the stormy sea. Davy Jones was calling me. Yeah, like Davy Jones's locker. Is that what they call the ocean? It's like having a watery grave. It's a dark way to end That's the it. album. But I like all these sort of sailor references and ocean references, given that it's been a water album. Look, I don't love this song either. <laughs> I don't like 1985 very much. I don't like these songs that are built on a few chords and build up and <laughs> turn into big pompous orchestral explosions at the end it's not really my thing but it's not terrible i think it's very interesting that you are comparing this to 1985 because i previously said that this was kind of a combination album between band on the run and ram Ah. and and you have a lot of the trio on this album of paul denny and linda which is really all that you have on band on the run and there's no Denny on Ram, but it's it's basically Paul and Linda and session musicians. Right. So London Town's this bizarre, esoteric, as you said, album. And of course, of course, we're ending on Morris Moose and the Grey Goose. <laughs> of course. I mean, we had an Elvis tribute. Wouldn't you say it's inevitable? <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, the inevitable ending of London Town. Yeah. How do Baby we get Jones's off locker. this boat? Oh yeah, a watery grave. the 
So looking back over several comments that you and I have made about the sound of this album and how it seems a bit, how would you put it? Muffled? Dingy? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like a blanket over the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's not like Paul, actually. We complimented Venus and Mars on how good it sounded compared to oh, it a lot of so contem- good. Yeah. Compared to contemporaneous releases. Yeah. Sounds really nice, really crisp and clean. One of my theories about why London Town sounds the way it is is the fact that it's 51 and a half minutes. That's a bit long to yeah. fit onto an LP. An LP really wants to be about 44 minutes. Perfect length for an LP. 20, give me 22 minutes per side maybe 20 per side, and you're going to get the best sound quality you can get out of a lovely piece of vinyl. When you start pushing toward 25 minutes per side, 26 minutes per side, what's happening is that the grooves are getting so narrow that it's getting hard to reproduce bass frequencies. Engineers would have known this at the time. So my theory is that they tried to compensate for the loss of bass by pumping up the low mids. Hmm. And so we got this really puffy sounding thing. They didn't think to compensate for the highs. So it ends up sounding a bit puffy because you've got really fat low mids, not enough high frequency compensation for it. And the really low lows are missing because the grooves are just not wide enough to reproduce them. It's funny that you say that. I pulled a quote in just the sound of the album This is all a quote right from Doyle. There were signs that Paul was touchy about the completed album. Playing it for Tony Bramwell, who had worked for the Beatles at both Brian Epstein's NEMS and Apple, McCartney casually asked for his opinion. Well, it'll be all right when it's finished, said Bramwell. At this, McCartney lost the plot, apparently, and shouted at his former associate, What the fuck do you know? I fucking brought you down from Liverpool. Ooh, touched a nerve. Yikes. So I think you're on to something there, man. I think, and it's not really mentioned anywhere. There's definitely some loss of fidelity somewhere. I mean, listen, when we get to Back to the Egg done a year later, it doesn't suffer from any of these problems. No, it's very clean. It's a very crisp and well clean, produced yeah. album, yeah. Say you don't love him. I salamander. all of london town i can dig into some press and then charts if you'd like yes let's do it so janet maslin of rolling stone is a quote from her paul linda and denny lane flit from fairy tale to fairy tale with virtually no notion that there's a real world out there let alone a real audience rough robert christigal this is his review mccartney's lyricism is so capricious so given to inanity and icky-poo, that only at its very best, with a little luck, and the affectionate goof on famous groupies, does it come on strong. Okay? Stephen Thomas Erlewine from allmusic.com. It's laid back, almost effortless. In fact, it's one of his strongest albums. Mixed reviews, but generally positive, aside from kind of the aimless nature 
of the album, as we've discussed throughout the entire podcast. So this album on the year-end charts for 1978 was 11 in France, 12 in Austria, 22 in Canada, 24 in the UK, 25 in Australia, 45 in Japan, 49 in Italy, and 56 in the U.S. Billboard 200. A lot of success, a lot of success. Certifications include gold in France, gold in Germany, gold in the U.K., platinum in the United States, and platinum in the Netherlands. We're talking big-time units moving for this album. And yet, kind of to what the press is saying, maybe seen as a weak record at the time. I think this is one of those albums like Ram, like Red Rose Speedway, that I hate to say this, that once McCartney's gone... They'll dig back into these albums and they'll find the songs that we're talking about and just be like, oh, wait, he was pretty good after the Beatles. He wasn't just silly love songs. He wasn't just let him in. He wasn't just, uh, what was that song? Freedom. You remember that from like 10 years ago? Ah, freedom. Yeah. Not one of McCartney's finest moments. I like this album a lot. Do I love it? Sometimes. Sometimes I don't. It's definitely worth a spin if you haven't listened to it. You know, you mentioned a few other albums a moment ago. Where would you put it alongside some of those other albums? Let's say Red Rose Speedway. How does this compare to Red Rose Speedway for you? Oh, that's a tough call, Chris. Wow. I don't think I've ever thought of that. Um, I'll take this over you Red don't Rose have Speedway. To. I'll take the I'll I'll Will take you? London Town over Red Rose. Okay. I'd probably take Red Rose, but only maybe because it has some childhood nostalgia magic about it. Yeah. I won't take Back to the Egg over this. I won't take Wildlife over this. You say you won't take Back to the Egg. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Now, I would take this over, over, yeah, quite a few of, you know, Wildlife. Yes, I would definitely take this over Wildlife. I defended Wildlife for its meager charms, but this has abundant charms. So that leads us to the leftovers, and there are some really interesting leftovers here. Let's start with Same Time Next Year. Must we wait another year for the celebration, dear? If we do, we'll hold it here. Same time. Same as ever, maybe wearing something else. Ah, but nothing changes. Ah, but nothing changes. Still, now this was recorded late in the, the London Town sessions. Yes, actually, all the way in 1978. And it was recorded for a movie called Same Time Next Year, (laughs) starring Alan Alda. Have you seen this movie? I haven't seen it, but I watched the trailer before the podcast. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So McCartney wrote this song. I think it's a really beautiful song. It sounds a bit London Town-ish to me, but it's more heavily orchestrated than anything on London Town. Very well orchestrated, in fact. It's a big record. Well, I saw the movie not too long ago. It's a touching movie, rather bittersweet. 
And the song they ended up going with instead of the McCartney was a song by Marvin Hamlish. And we could play a little bit of that song here. I think it probably, it's sentimental enough that it probably does a better job of tear-jerking over the course of the movie <laughs> because the song recurs. There's show time passing. It's a, it's a bittersweet story about this couple who have an affair that goes on for decades, and they just keep meeting up once a year and pursuing this affair. Wow. And it becomes a sort of sidetrack of their lives. And so the music plays as time passes. It sort of shows a collage of things happening, and the song plays. And the song plays every single time. The last time I felt like this. The last time I felt like this. That's right. I don't even know your name But I'm hoping all the same This is more than just a simple hello Hello, do I smile and look away? No, I think I smile and stay To see where this might go And it's a, a more traditional song than the McCartney song. The McCartney song is a bit odd. It's got that Paul eccentricity about it. It's earnest, and it would have worked. But eh, if you're going for maximum tear-jerking, you might as well go with the Marvin Hamlish, I mm-hmm. guess. Anyway, what do you think of this song? I actually really love Same Time Next Year. Out of all the tunes that we're going to speak about, except for maybe Water Spout, I think this one is just such a great tune. I would I would swap a number of songs off of this album, London Town, for this tune. Or I oh, of course. I, I don't know why Paul didn't just put this one on Back to the Egg, and we'll get to Back to the Egg and the mess that Back to the Egg is. But it, yeah, I mean, I was about to say, would it make sense on Back to the Egg? But does anything on Back to the Egg make sense on Back to the no, Egg? No, so, not really. Yeah, might as it, well have a good song. And I think this tune and the rejection of this tune and knowing that Water Spout was made and rejected. And then when we get to Back to the Egg and Cage and all these others, I think this is kind of where Hot Hits and Cold Cuts comes from. I think Paul knows deep down that he has, like, man, he's sitting on all these gems, all these well-made songs. I mean, the guy who yeah, and did... This, this one is a prime example. Why would he sit on this song all the... He's never even released this as a B-side as far as I know, right? <laughs> and that's the thing. This is why it's so frustrating. He put it out as the B-side to the Put It There 12-inch single in 1990. <sighs> it's on... Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that slipped my mind. Um no, yeah. but of course, even wow. even McCartney fans like you and me, you don't know. <laughs> I had to look that up. <laughs> Come on, Paul. 
Well, it's a very worthy track, and it's a total mystery. Total mystery how this got buried. Yeah. You know, I, I understand. Maybe the producers of the film owned it. Oh, that's These interesting. These licensing Probably. things can be complicated, yeah. Very complicated. So that leads us to another another song with somewhat of a film association, and that's Did We Meet Somewhere Before. I don't like this song as much. Yeah, this ended up in Rock and Roll High School. Mm-hmm. Although only as an afterthought, I believe. Yeah, it was intended for Heaven Can Wait, starring Warren Beatty and I think Julie Christie. Right. So it was written for one movie, wound up in another movie. And I think it's a good song. Did we meet somewhere before? Okay, I probably like it about as much as Same Time Next Year. Maybe not quite as much. I'm not thrilled about the All the King's Horsemen and All the King's whatever that part is. <laughs> okay. Not thrilled. Uh, good point. But the rest of it's okay, great. Okay, good point. The rest of it's really, really good. It's a really wonderful vocal, too. He's using his smoky, his high, smoky, my love voice. On yes. It. Yes, he is. That's nice. Nice to hear. Very uh, well produced. Good orchestration on this. Decent lyric, except for the lyric I just mentioned. You scan over them. Did we meet somewhere before, far behind that half-closed door? Or is this just one small thing that's happening to both of us? Pretty good, man. That's nice. Pretty good. One small thing that's happening to both of us. I like that. Yeah. And he really goes for it on some of those high notes. Sounds really good. Yeah, this was another Hot Hits Cold Cuts track. Now, I think this maybe came a little late to have been on London Town, but I would happily have seen it in place of some of what's on Back to the Egg. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or is this just one more thing that's happening to both of us? It's happening. So that brings us to Water Spout. Well, I and could dedicate a whole podcast to Water Spout, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Water Spout, for me, this wins the prize for all-time greatest unreleased McCartney track and therefore all-time most inexplicable unreleased McCartney track. Yeah. and I How think, in the world is this something that only a few of us nerds know about? I don't, I don't know. Before we even talk about it, why don't we just dive in and show people what we're talking about? Okay.
So that has real, listen to what the man said, silly love songs energy. That's timeless hit energy to my ear. Great orchestration, that rhythm. I don't even know what kind of rhythm you'd even call that. Good melody, good vocal performance. It's catchy. Great background harmonies, again, with the wings background harmonies. Uh, So great in the chorus the bizarre kind of daddy and woody and all these characters and he liked it so much it almost ended up as a track for all the best well he liked it so much he never released it ever (laughs) i mean it's mysterious it you know it's right there with this is one of the songs we've alluded to throughout the entire run of the podcast where how is something like this just buried Not just buried in the sense people have forgotten, but buried in the sense that it just did not get released. Remarkable. And you and I were talking about the the stuff that has fallen out that's on the internet. There doesn't really sound like a version, at least, that's all the way done. Well, okay, if I understand correctly, this was recorded on the Fair Carol. I have it down 77, Spirit of Ranachan Studios, and then also work done on the boat. Worked on on the boat. Okay. Because it has the sound of London Town. It would work so perfectly on that album. Pretty much anywhere. Pick a spot and throw it on. It would work perfectly. Now, there's some mysterious things about the track because, as you were saying, you and I have both heard multiple versions of this thing. And I'm not sure we know what version is what. No, I don't know at this point. The version that I favor is the version that I believe is simply the Cold Cuts version. Yes, and 86. I think it was 
1981 as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. See, again, it's hard to keep track of so, some of these. I'm thinking that there that the version that I love is the version that was begun in 78 and that they added some more stuff to in 81. And that's the version that I think is the one I know and love. There are other versions though. With, there's one with some obnoxious horns on it. Yeah. yeah. There's one with no background vocals and really kind of out of tune double tracking on the lead vocals. Clearly he had added something in 80 it was his 87 voice. It was his 86, 87 voice on top of the old voice and no background vocals. It sounded really bad. Mm. But there's a near perfect version, as far as I'm concerned, that I think dates from 81. But I guess we don't have any way to verify that, do we? At this point. Anyway, the, the, one, the one we played is the one I like. And if anybody has any more information about this, any, please shed some light, send us an email, send us a note on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, whatever it takes. I cannot wait to see if Paul continues with the archive edition. I mean, at the time of recording, like it's not out. Well, I hope we get back to that. I had understood that Flowers in the Dirt was coming. So Waterspout, one of the great unreleased McCartney tracks of all time. Glad we could share it with the listeners. I'm really glad we got to do that. I'm excited to hear what the reaction is. So I think we have a handful of odds and ends here. After you've gone. After you've gone and left me crying. After you've gone, there's no denying. You've been blue. You've been sad. You missed the dearest battle that you've ever had. I will speak to this one for a second because I really love it. And I thought Paul wrote it for the longest time because I had this demo. I thought he wrote it. It's a 1918 popular song composed by Turner Layton. And the lyrics are written by Henry Creamer. This tune has been recorded by Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, Benny Goodman, Julie Garland, Ella Fitzgerald, Bobby Darin, Sinatra, Phil Collins, Mel Torme, Rufus Wainwright, and even Fiona Apple. Like... This is a famous song, and the version we have from Paul is the London Town demos. Almost the same, it's probably the same drum machine on Waterspout, or the Boyle Crisis demo. Just bizarre little drum bit, and then him performing on like a keyboard. But I love the time change that ends up happening halfway through the song. It's slow, and then kicks up tempo. Really nice. Yeah, that's right. As far as why he was recording this, I have no idea. I have no idea. Couldn't yeah. find info on it. We have well, the recording. you know, he goes into the Rude Studio, and this is Rude Studios, right? Yeah. Yeah, he goes in there and fools around. Sometimes it leads to something, and sometimes it doesn't. Definitely a bizarre choice. I thought he was going to put this on that Kisses from the Bottom album, or did mm. not. Too bad.
well, on my list here, I know we touched on Boyle Crisis. It's not much to it. Ah, uh, yes. Well, it's remarkable, though. We should maybe play a bit of that and introduce people to Boyle Crisis. Bricks of Lighter! Yeah, a gift to Heather McCartney, who was a big fan of the punk scene at the time. I mean, she was a kid, obviously. She's a fan of popular music. Paul comes back from the fair carol, heads into Abbey Road, recorded at Abbey Road. Yeah, hard to believe. And releases his little punk number just for his daughter. He And he's like, I can't put this out. People will kill me if I put this one out. So, Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. And what's he saying? Is he is he just making fun of his daughter, his, her concern with her skin, or is he really <laughs> suggesting that that punk and new wave were about teen angst and nothing more? I hope it's not a a diss track to Heather McCartney. I I, I would prefer <laughs> if it were the latter, frankly. Well, in any case, it's it's there's not much to it. It's a joke. It's a joke song. So a little jokey song, but kind of fun and. Yeah. So that leaves us with B-side to C-side. Right. a super cool track <laughs> what do you like am i about crazy it? well i mean we're both a little crazy if we're even doing this podcast but <laughs> <laughs> what do you uh what do you like about that one hmm i like linda's talking i think she actually talks in a really cool way in this track mm-hmm. and it's got this uh forward looking sound to it it's a bit 80s sounding yeah i agree with that yeah it was recorded what in 77 Yes. Early in the London Town sessions, right? But it, it's rather yeah. forward-looking. It reminds me a bit of Night Out and Jazz Street, these songs that have this kind of almost dance music quality. I don't know. I think it's a neat record. Yeah, I like it. Like, So they were still thinking about Seaside Woman. Because if, right? if I remember correctly... Isn't that Red Rose Speedway era? Yeah, 70, 72. 72-ish. Yeah. And this was, it was released as the B-side with Susie and the Red Stripes, that little 45. That'd be a nice little collector's item for Christmas. Yeah, I don't have that. I'm totally, uh, totally down with the B-side to see. I mean, okay with Seaside Woman, but I like B-side to Seaside even more. That's the highlight on that single. Well, how about we just play out B-side to Seaside very fitting for an album that was originally entitled Water Wings, was recorded on water, has a outtake that we both love called Water Spout, B-side <laughs> to the seaside. We'll just sail on out of here. On to the outside, into the 
You are listening to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. That was London Town. Next up, back to the egg. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.